What's up guys, coming at you from Shenzhen as usual, and today I am very excited to bring you an interview, discussion, conversation, whatever you'd like to call it, with a journalist from the US who I have great respect for, and I've been following his work for quite some time. His name is Dan Cohen, and without further ado, let's get to the chat. All right, what, Dan, welcome to the show. We're finally able to connect. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I think we've, uh, to, to, to just mention to the audience, I think we've known each other since, well, online since October. We've been going back and forth with each other, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, that's when I kind of dove into some of the, you know, US-China Cold War issues and, and we first connected. But really, really good to be with you. Glad uh Glad you invited me yeah, on. Thanks, thanks, thanks. The uh, I, I, I mean, you were really busy then. I saw how much content you were putting out. You were putting out quite a lot of really good content then. But now you're a new father, just as of recently, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you hear some like screaming in the background, that's not like a CIA torture site. That's my little girl who's now just <laughs> over a month old. So um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. what a what a crazy time to be a, yeah, to become eh? a father. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, actually, I want to talk about that in a second, but maybe before we continue, maybe you can just give like a really brief introduction uh, to who you are, or what you do and, and, and that kind of stuff. To the sure, audience. sure. So I'm an American journalist and I guess I'd call myself a filmmaker. Um, I've been reporting since 2014. I spent um, three years from 2014 to 2017 in Israel, Palestine and uh, did a lot of reporting there and um, spent a lot of time in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and it was there during the 2014 Israeli war in Gaza um, and made a documentary about that called Killing Gaza, um, which I have to get Mandarin subtitles on. I haven't done that, um, but that's a really good idea because obviously there's a huge audience. Um, um, so I made that documentary and I worked for RT uh, America for a few years, um, which, you know, Russian media. Um, and now I work for an outlet that's also partially RT funded called in the now. Um, and I'm working on another documentary about the Israeli right wing. Um, and so that's my work. And then I'm, um, you know, I kind of cover a range of geopolitical issues, whatever it may be. A lot of stuff about the Middle East, but I mean, more and more, I'm, I'm very interested in China, um, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, we're in, like it or not, I mean, oh, I'd say not, but we're in, a, we're in, you know, some kind of cold war and it's really dangerous. And, and you know, right now it's actually even killing people in the U.S. Um, so, you know, it's something we can get into more, but. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, this will be a bit of an awkward backstep, but I just wanted to finish on that because right now what we're all going through, we obviously finished it here. Things are starting to heat up there for you is the whole coronavirus situation. And I want I wondered uh, uh, just on the topic of having a baby during this time, was that really, because I mean, for us, our youngest, uh, he just turned two, uh, uh, one year old two days ago. And uh, we were really worried. Obviously, it's getting more and more um, apparent that this doesn't affect kids as much. But w was that really nerve wracking for you guys to be kind of having this during this time? Well, we actually planned to have uh, the birth during the pandemic. Um, oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I mean, it's definitely uh, scary. Um, you know, thank God that this virus doesn't really affect um, babies and, and children. Oh, I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, though it's, it's, it still can. So, you know, I'm still mm-hmm. being extremely cautious and I've been pretty well ahead of the curve of most Americans, um, you know, in terms of hygiene, washing hands. I mean, I wear a mask outside, this kind of thing, which almost nobody does, though more and more people do here um, in the last week or so. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really scary. I also have my in-laws from Spain here. Um, and so we had this really difficult decision um, about a week ago. They came for the birth and it was like, well, do we send them back to Spain? Spain obviously is in really bad shape right now. And so we just decided to keep them here, not knowing that, you know, how things are going to turn out. So far, Washington, at least from what we know, is not, doesn't appear to be um, one of the epicenters in the U.S. Um, Obviously, you know, obviously New York, New York City especially is, and that's only a few hours away. Um, And certainly things could change in Washington, but we're basically holed up in my house. You know, I go out, I go to the grocery store, you know, I do the necessary things as little as possible, but we're kind of in, in a way it's like, we're already quarantined um, yeah. in the home with the newborn. Um, right. So, so it's not that different, but at the same time, it's very scary and we just don't have any visitors now. So yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So, it's a really yeah, insecure it, time. Definitely. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, in terms of supplies, getting the things you need, um, toilet paper, <laughs> you know, can you, can you get all this stuff? Is it okay where you are? Um, you know, I, I did, I bought a fair amount of toilet paper basically before everyone else. I didn't like hoard it. Like one of these insane people. You, you knew, did like, did you know this was going to happen or you were just like, you, you're, you do your toilet paper shopping once every couple months. (laughs) No, I mean, I knew I I was kind of, you know, like I I was paying attention, you know, where most Americans, our media was, was like mocking China and sneering at China for the measures it was taking, Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, contain, uh, the, the virus. I don't know if we're saying it or not, but, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I was paying attention and I was like, I, I know this is going to come here and pretty soon, um, we're going to be confronting it. And so I was just going and stocking up, you know, I got some, I got some cases of bottled water, which is another mm-hmm. issue because, you know, you'd think you can drink the tap water, but here in DC and especially in the older homes, um, we have lead pipes. And so there's oh. been major issues uh, mm. after around 2002 for a few years, there's major issues with people, you know, getting lead poisoning and this kind of thing. And so I have to have bottled water, um, mm. especially with a newborn. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I have, I'm, I'm stocked up pretty well. I could last a couple of weeks if, you know, supply chains were totally shut, shut down. But I mean, um, you know, when I go to the grocery store now, there are significant lines, um, and there are many items that are just missing from the shelves. If you have, you yeah. know, fortunate timing when, you know, after, uh, after a, a truck has, you know, delivered, um, food and, you know, all kinds of things, then you're okay, but you just never know. And because there's no centralized system or anything, people can just hoard so, yeah. you know, you'll go somewhere and they don't have any bleach, but they have a lot of um, paper towels. And so somebody's bought a whole bunch of bleach and then you go to another place and it's, you know, vice versa. And so it's like one person has all the bleach. One person has all the paper towels. You all need to get together and have exactly. some sort of a trading post somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? So it's like every man for themselves here. And it's really just a bad way to operate, 
Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the, the saddest video I saw was um, of a video that went viral of a mother who wanted to buy diapers. And she knew that people were just buying it all up. She didn't have the financial ability to buy a bunch of packs all at once. And then when she was ready to restock, to buy another one pack again, because that's how she has to buy them. She was just crying in the grocery store saying, I can't do, I can't do this. Like, what am I supposed to do? That's so um, brutal. I, can, I can't even imagine that. And I know there's a lot of people around here uh, who are in that very situation. Millions of people in this country who are, who are facing that. It's really sad. It really is sad. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's uh, unprecedented times where I'm, you know, we've never seen or faced anything like this. Hopefully um, everybody can learn something from it. Um, and there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of important questions, I think, that have come from this that we need to ask ourselves terms of how society operates and everything like that. But um, I want to go on to one of the more main topics that I wanted to talk about, or at least the thing that, that brought us together, which was the um, your Hong Kong video. And when I saw that Hong Kong video that you did, um, it was really amazing. And I really connected with it, not only because it was so well put together, it was well presented, but because for months, I had been um, speaking about the Hong Kong protests and the and the ridiculousness of how uh, Western media was covering it. And it was just, it was just beyond ridiculous, but there weren't many other non-Chinese people standing up against it and, 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 and talking about it. Uh, so it was a lonely space. And then when I saw your video, I was like, what's going on here? There's another non-Chinese who gets it, who understands it. And so what I want to know is like, what got you onto that uh, project? Uh, what was it like, the process? What was the feeling like when you uncovered some of the shocking details about it? Just tell me a little bit about the whole experience. Well, I mean, I feel like it was so obvious, um, you know, to anyone who's, you know, just paying attention to at least what I saw on Twitter. It's like if you read the New York Times or you watch CNN or any of this stuff, you know, it's just yeah. freedom fighters versus the totalitarian, you know, communist dictatorship. And that's it. <laughs> Um, but you know, you just, I just saw all these like snuff videos on Twitter where it was just like these, you know, masked mobs are just beating people senseless. And it's like, it's kind of like what Republicans in this country say Antifa is, um, you know, where, where it's, you know, Antifa is the anti-fascist, like basically street groups, um, that confront like far right, like neo-Nazi groups, which, you know, whatever you think of them. It's basically what they say. They say that there are these, you know, dangerous mobs who are just attacking basically innocent people. And that's exactly basically what we saw in Hong Kong. And so I'm, I don't know. I don't, you know, part of working for foreign media is I can say whatever I want. You can't do that. Even if, even if you, you know, say you work for some mainstream outlet in the U.S. and you see this stuff, you just know that there's no point in even trying to go after it. And so I, you know, I have this freedom that basically other reporters don't have. Um, and I pay attention, you know, to geopolitics, especially. And so, um, like, I, I did a, an investigation into the um, attempted coup in Venezuela, where the U.S. basically announced that Juan Guaido, this, you know, unknown guy, is president. And so I exposed him and, you know, showed he's basically trained by a CIA cutout. And so it's like, I'm always looking for the next kind of, you know, US plot, um, wherever on the globe and Hong Kong, I felt like I was actually laid on like, I was surprised that no one else, or at least that I wasn't, you know, I was aware of, um, in English language media was kind of exposing this whole thing. And so, you know, it just took a little bit of, of research 
you know, I talked to a few people who kind of knew the material, knew the landscape better than I do, but it seemed like, you know, you have these, these masked mobs waving, uh, flags that say president trump please liberate us and waving american flags i mean they kind of overplayed their hand a little bit it was so blatantly obvious it, 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 like... it kept getting they kept getting more and more and more bold like you know where it was like really how can you top this and then you've got some of the protesters flying to uh testify in front of congress it's like it got to a point where it's like, holy crap, can you imagine if during Occupy Wall Street or the Hawaii independence protests, you had a bunch of them flying over to Beijing and, and saying, OK, how can we penalize the U.S.? How can you help us? Oh, my God. Could you imagine the response from America? And maybe even they'd be they'd be taken in for treason for that. But like it, it just they were getting away with it. And the Western media wasn't saying anything. And it just kept going further and further and further. The first time I actually saw the Western media saying something, or at least starting, and they didn't do it in a significant way, saying, oh, there's a problem with these protesters, was after the coronavirus stuff started, when you started seeing the signs they were do uh, saying, like how they were villainizing um, uh, mainland Chinese and, and the way, the words they were using. That's when uh, you saw a couple of outlets come out and say, oh, we're seeing a little bit of the dark side of these protesters come out. But yeah, they just kept pushing it, didn't they? I did see a little bit um when the when they occupied the airport back in like august and that was right that was right around that my my article came out in august too and and honestly i had no idea that it was gonna i wrote an article for a gray zone project um and the video that i did was based off of was basically you know taking the same material kind of you know more opinion but um i mean to me that was such a shocking moment and as much as you know, mainstream Western media tried to like hide that. It was so blatant that, you know, you, uh, you know, they did. I remember they were like, Oh, you know, we regret beating, beating, uh, you know, those journalists and, and detaining people in the airport and this kind of thing. And it was just so shocking that it was impossible, you know, so they had to kind of uh, uh, like do these pseudo apologies and, and Western media ran with it. But um, I mean, do, do do you know, uh, I, I want to just ask too, the, the guy, the old man who was lit on fire also, oh, yeah. he was just trying to stop the, pro uh, and, and it took him months and months and months to recover. And he was, uh, he didn't even recognize his daughter when he was in the hospital. He was scared when people approached him. He's out now. And you just see he is totally transformed. Did that get, or does it continue to get any coverage saying this happened in Hong Kong? No, that was like, that did not break through Western, the like Western media bubble. You know, the, the like shield, the iron dome over our heads at all. That was like totally ignored. And when I saw that, you know, that actually in a, basically the same kind of thing happened in Venezuela. So, you know, basically, I mean, these are essentially in Venezuela, you know, I mean, and in, in Hong Kong, the U.S. is deeply involved if it's, you know, the U.S. hand is behind these. Um, and there was what they call guarimbas in Venezuela. Um, where it's basically, you know, disaffected youth um, who are in the street, you know, trying to shut down the economy, just wreak as much havoc as they can. And they're often, you know, like in Hong Kong, there's a lot of racism. Um, and in Venezuela, they actually took uh, a black um, supporter of the government, Chavista, they call him a supporter of the uh, Chavez movement, um, and set him on fire and killed him this, and you know this young man died and so when i saw that in hong kong i mean it was like this is the same tactic where they just take people and set them on fire so 
As, sho- as shocking as that was, I was not surprised by it at all. And I was also not surprised that Western media totally ignored it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really concerning. So, you know, they had their district uh, council elections and um, the uh, Democratic parties won most of the seats. And, and they look at that. Uh, people call it a landslide victory because it was like over 80 percent of the seats or something like that. But when you actually look at the numbers, it was something like 54 percent voted for pro-democracy uh, uh, or anti-establishment, whatever you want to call it, seats. So there's a large percentage of the population um, the close to half, not quite half, but that really disagree with this uh, movement. And they can't, they couldn't speak up. They wouldn't dare speak up. I've got friends who, um, you know, the, one of the despicable things is one of my friends, he noticed when he took his uh, mother in for cancer treatment into one of the hospitals, doctors and nurses were wearing political badges, like the five demands things and stuff like that, which is so unprofessional to bring that into a workplace right. like that. And one of my friends who works in the hospital system, she's, uh, I never wanted to know her opinion on it because I was afraid she's a a family uh, friend for over 20 years. And this is the kind of stuff that divides people. And so I never said anything with her. I never wanted to know her opinion because I didn't want us to ruin our our friendship. But she ended up seeing one of my videos that went viral on Facebook amongst the Hong Kong groups. And she reached out to me to say to me, you know, I, 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 I like what you're doing and I can't say anything in the hospital. I wouldn't dare say it. We, I had an artist, a Hong Kong artist who came over and did a show uh, kind of halfway between all that, that stuff was happening. And when she was here, she invited me over to the gallery and she was talking and she says, oh, now I'm in Shenzhen. I feel so free. I can say whatever I want, which is such an irony. She's come over to the mainland side and finally can say anything that she wants. It was crazy. Right. No, that looked like a really terrifying time. I mean, where it's, you know, anybody could just be beaten at any time. Uh, I mean, it was like some kind of like zombie. I, I don't know. It was like a zombie movie or something where it's like these cr- these crowds, these mobs would just beat people for anything. I mean, the, you know, I remember that horrifying video of the, um, I think it was like a, a street cleaner who got hit with a brick in the head yeah. and died. Um, and yeah, it's, died. Yep. I mean, you know, it was just like every day I would see like two or three videos and, and, you know, I know that's just what's basically being translated into English and what makes it, you know, my Twitter. Yeah. 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 Do you know that, that, um, that, uh, when that happened, um, his son came out and a pro Beijing group or pro establishment, whatever you want to call it. Um, they were speaking to his son. And his son was speaking to them in Mandarin uh, because the, the group was in Mandarin, uh, speaking Mandarin. And some of the journalists in Hong Kong, they they did these tweets. And so much of their tweet was dedicated to saying that this grieving son was speaking Mandarin and to a pro-Beijing group as if it made it, uh, uh, you know, less of a, 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 a terrible crime. And it, the, the response even to that, to try to marginalize the death of this man through the fact that his son was speaking Mandarin, really spoke volumes also. Yeah, it's, it's just really gross. I mean, there there are parallels we can make, you know, in this country of, of you know, white supremacy, which there's a, a long history of, um, and, you know, uh, xenophobia and racism that, you know, is obvious. To me, it was really obvious, uh, you know, and, and learning about that was, was actually really fascinating and helped me kind of understand the Hong Kong, you know, mainland dynamic in a way that I really didn't even know existed. Yeah, I, I want to get back to that whole uh, race um, uh, dynamic or culture dynamic in a second. But the thing is, it, what, what is remarkable is how well they controlled the narrative, how well they made people ignore that part of it. You know, there was one guy, there was a vlogger named uh, to- Toby Gu, who came over to Hong Kong from, from, uh, from Canada. He's an Asian Canadian. 
Um, and he came specifically to cover the police violence, you know, all of the violence from the police. And the first night, what he found was mobs of people beating up, a, uh, I think it was a, a Mandarin speaking or somebody who disagreed with the crowd, like beating him up really seriously. And he couldn't find any of this police brutality. He says, oh, my God, is this what's happening? And he posted it online with very little uh, uh, commentary. He says, this is what I saw. He instantly got death threats from so many people in Hong Kong. And he was hiding up in his hotel room for, I think it was 36 hours. And then what happened was there's another guy, the owner of Hong Kong Free Press, which is funded by a bunch of NGOs and things like that. Um, he came out to add a little bit of fuel to this fire. And he said, this guy is coming, pretending to be a journalist um, and posted his pictures on his Twitter and said, if you see him, confront him already when he already has death threats. And what this guy did, all this guy did was catch a scene that the Hong Kong Free Press and everybody else is being being been trying so hard to cover up. Right. So it was it, there were really violent mechanisms in place to try to protect this narrative. They knew that they had people fooled and they, they would go to extreme lengths to make sure that they protected that narrative. Right. No, it's I mean, it's 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 so obvious that it's, uh, you know, there's there's such a huge amount of media manipulation going on um, where, you know, it's it's like the, you know, the the dissonance between what you see, what I would see on television here and then what I would see on Twitter from, you know, accounts that are that are showing, you know, counter narrative. It's like, OK, obviously uh, the television narrative is, is not telling the whole story here. Um, and then it's basically comes down to activists, you know, on Twitter, um, trying to show, you know, show like the other side and, sh and kind of, you know, show, th show the whole thing of what's really happening. I mean, to me, how media operated, it, you know, was not, it's not journalism, it's propaganda. Um, and it's all about, you know, furthering the goals of really the U.S. Um, in Hong Kong in terms of destabilizing it um, as long as possible, weakening it. Um, you know, weakening China as, as much as it can um, in any way possible. And, and it's kind of, uh, um, you know, it, it just shows what kind of, how coordinated the whole thing is and how so many so-called journalists um, are just so eager to act as propagandists in order to kind of, you know, go with this, to, to like fulfill, I don't know, some kind of like Cold War fantasy that they have yeah yeah it, it really is amazing isn't it like i i i connected with somebody recently um named i believe is pierce robinson and he's a co-director of a propaganda studies at a university and um he was talking about something interesting that you know in these countries that uh, more uh, practice censorship almost in a he didn't say it in these exact words but where you know it's there it's a, like almost like transparent censorship the people of those societies know uh, uh better about the limitations of their media but in the west we're so convinced that uh, the media is, is sep so separated from political power and it's so free that that's even more dangerous where we think we have free thought. We don't think we're being fooled and we're actually even more fooled than the people we're calling brainwashed. Exactly. It's totally true. Piers is a great, is a great guy. Good friend too. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I know, I know him well. He's done uh, incredible work uh, on Syria in particular and um, kind of U S regime change deceptions um, on that end. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, everyone here, yeah, we think we, we have free media. I mean, you know, Twitter, Twitter, Facebook, Google, all of these kind of social media giants that are, you know, Silicon Valley social media giants, um, they're very closely connected and basically have their origins um, in the U.S. government and, um, and, and particularly the CIA. And they essentially are 
um, tools of of the U.S. government. Um, my uh, yeah. a friend of mine, Yasha Levine, wrote a really great book called Surveillance Valley that I really recommend. He dives into all of this. It's the secret uh, military history of the internet, um, and he he kind of explains the whole thing. But I mean, the, you know, there's so much censorship. My my article on Juan Guaido, the Venezuela thing, that went viral, but then. Google disappeared it. You literally could not find it on Google. The only reason I could you could find it is because other websites uh, republished it. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you'd find it there, but it was like Google just disappeared it. I mean, there's so much censorship in the U.S. You, 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 yeah, yeah. You know, you know, the one that was the most uh, shocking was during the uh, Soleimani incident where they um, basically assassinated an Iranian uh, general in, um, in uh, Saudi Arabia. In Iraq. Not only... Or sorry, in in, in Iraq, he mm-hmm. was on his way for a, a peace talk with uh, yes. Saudi Arabia officials. Yes. Uh, so it was remarkable that that didn't get out to the news that he was actually on a peace talk, which could have brought stability to the region. Um, but how that narrative was controlled so much, and that Facebook even had something that came out saying that that uh, to comply with U.S. sanctions, they were going to remove people uh, from Iran or anybody who even uh, uh, sympathized with them. And they really controlled that narrative so well. They took the, um, it was a, uh, an official from Syria. They banned him off of Twitter when he started speaking out. Or it was the Syrian president, I think right. it was. Yes. Um, took uh, Banned him off of Twitter when he spoke up and he gave his opinions on it. And then all of a sudden, of all places, of all ironies, they moved to Weibo in China to start having a discussion on the topic. Where they started, you know, you had a, a, a U.S. Um, a, a embassy or official with, a, with an uh, um uh, Syrian uh, official arguing in Chinese on the Chinese internet behind the great firewall here right. because they couldn't do it on Twitter. Right. <laughs> it was like, what has happened here? Right. Total, total irony. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's just like so many myths are being destroyed. And I mean, I, you know, it's, it's like, this is kind of the pattern I see in uh, kind of all over the place, even right now with, you know, with, with what's happening is that China is kind of filling the space that the U.S. is leaving behind. And so it's like if the U.S. is going to censor itself and basically you can't have it as a platform for free speech, um, you know, then the the Chinese alternative is is there and people will use it. And I think that's what's actually happening on, you know, on on all scales. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people are starting to realize, I mean, a lot of Chinese people already knew this, but you're, I'm hearing more foreigners saying, you know, for international politics, Chinese news is way more reliable. They, they may not concede that that for issues within China um, that it is, but definitely for international issues, because it's tied to a far less uh, foreign policy agenda. Uh, sure, they have the one road, one belt, and they may have some, you know, uh, in, in that way, you can say they have some agenda there, but it's far less aggressive than the foreign policy agenda of places like the U.S., um, which then um, have kind of the news agencies um, surrounding around that narrative. So you end up getting a more raw, authentic, factual report. There was actually a really funny one, too, where um, it was shared on Twitter and it got a lot of retweets. It was during the early stages of this virus, and it was a North Korean news report where they listed out, they said, this is what's happening. Here are the numbers, here are the deaths, here's how it's spreading. No opinion attached to it, just data, just facts. And people were retweeting it saying, wow, this is where, this is way more factual, way more just what we need right now. And it's coming from North Korea. And it completely, um, for people who are willing enough to look at this, uh, evaluate um, what's wrong here, because there's something wrong here when that's, uh, when that's the case. Yeah, you know, I actually watch a fair amount of CGTN, um, and you know, when I compare that with like CNN, 
or MSNBC or any of this stuff. I mean, it's not hyper ideological. I mean, you know, clearly there's, you know, uh, I don't even know if I would say an agenda, but there's a perspective. I mean, without a doubt, everything has a perspective. And right. part of being a media consumer is you have to be able to discern, you know, take take different outlets and um, and basically, you know, figure out what's what's what based on, you know, different things you read. Um, but, you know, when I watch MSNBC, that it's, you know, you have basically former CIA heads and FBI and this and that, that are the national security or, uh, you know, correspondents or analysts. And it's like, wait, this is just like, this is just intelligence. Like this is just CIA TV. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so it's like, I don't think the U S has any room to criticize, you know, outlets like CGTN or RT, um, which, you know, if you, RT international and the Spanish channel actually do really good jobs and the Arabic channel, I mean, all of those are actually huge around the world, but it's been so demonized in the U.S. Yeah. Um, same with CGTN to a lesser degree. Right. So what, what do you think then of this whole thing with um, the journalists being expelled from uh, China? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, I didn't actually I didn't f follow it extremely closely, which I regret. But I mean, I, you know, I do think at a point it's like when journalists are intentionally basically lying in order to, you know, promote foreign policy of another country. Um, I think it's fair to consider. Um, I'm definitely a believer. I, I definitely believe in free speech, but I do think it can be exploited. Yeah, I, I actually, I'm going to bring in some examples of that um, in a moment, because you're absolutely right. But I, I think, you know, uh, um, because I saw you uh, retweet something before that happened, and it was a retweet about when the U.S. put restrictions on Chinese uh, media in, exactly. in, in the And you were basically calling out, you said, wait until the uh, China does the same thing. It's going to be all the rage. And, and that's exactly what happened. So China did, because it does look like it was in a retaliation. Oh, yeah. Uh, even from, you know, even from uh, uh, these news outlets that were kicked out from their open letter, even in their open letter to the Chinese government, uh, they, they said that they recognize that this is retaliation and they don't think they should go down this road. But that's that's a part that's left out of the conversation a lot, too, that it was a retaliation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a tit for tat move. Uh, I mean, the CGTN journalists, all the Chinese state journalists were here in the U.S. were forced to re to um, register as diplomats. They're considered representatives of the government, which is just insane. I mean, I worked for RT America. I didn't have any connections with the the Russian government, um, <laughs> and you know, it's like there has to be a differentiation between a state-funded journalist and a diplomat. And you know, to I mean. Uh, Heather Nauer, the former State Department spokesperson, I remember one time she was uh, asked a question by an RT journalist at a briefing, and she said, oh, you from the Russian government. And it's like, that's a, that's a journalist. That's an American journalist. That's not a diplomat. And it's, I mean, I've got to think that a State Department official knows the difference between a journalist and a diplomat. But I mean, it's just shocking how banal, uh, you know, it's become here. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm gonna. Um, there's a few things I missed out that I wanted to talk about the uh, the Hong Kong protests also. So we're gonna jump back, and then I've got a few more things that I'd like to cover on that topic. But um, 
one of the things if, uh, uh, that, we, that we really connected on in terms of tweets was after you did your video, I, I retweeted you and I added a lot of context in terms of additional things I noticed. But the other thing that I, um, uh, I did was when there was a district councillor who was commenting on your thread and who was really triggered by you, uh, especially because you called out Jimmy Lai, which, who, who funds his party. I posted some context about who this district councillor was, and I showed screenshots of his unbelievable hatred towards mainlanders. It, it, even though within his district that he's responsible for, that he's been elected for, he has mainlanders that live under him. But just the despicable things he was saying, and you were like, you said, wow, is this what this guy is about? But could you imagine a, a politician in America or anywhere else getting away with the kind of stuff that these district councillors were saying about mainlanders? It's pretty remarkable. I mean, it just reminds me of, you know, actually where I'm from, like, uh, I'm from Arizona, which is a very right wing state, generally speaking. Um, and it's known for, um, for some of the like, small time politicians saying really crazy things. Um, you know, the, the stuff about, for example, Obama um, was born, you know, was not born in the US, that whole birther conspiracy. Um, Oh man, I wish I could think of some of the like really outlandish things they've said. Um, but, I remember that time. I mean, oh yeah, that was huge. Even you know, even Trump went with that. But I mean, you know, basically you see these like really extreme comments. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes about about Jews too, about this, that, the next thing. Really, really psychotic conspiracy theories um, from elected officials too, though. Yeah, from elected officials. Okay. But it's yeah. like these are like nut jobs that. You know, and that's and so I mean, we do have kind of a corollary here, um, right. unsurprisingly, which you know probably there's something to be said for why the ones in you know in Hong Kong that they're that are you know so outlandish that they're very close with the United States where we have them too. Well, well, yeah, actually, that 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 ties into another point I want to mention because um, I want to get your opinion on the whole uh, 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 Jimmy Lai thing. So for people who don't know, he's kind of a a, a media tycoon in uh, Hong Kong here. And he has been for a year stirring up conflict uh, between uh, locals and mainlanders, publishing things, calling mainlanders locusts and really despicable things that um, you, you wouldn't imagine would be allowed in newspapers anywhere else. Um, now, in your video, you talk about um, uh, Jimmy Lai. I, if I remember correctly, you don't go as far as saying what he is doing is a specific uh, you know, U.S. operation, but you can't help but think. And, uh, you know, it makes me think also, you know, of my mother's country, Guyana. Because there are documents now that are declassified about Guyana that shows that when um, Chetty Jagan, the first prime minister, was uh, uh, elected and they were just about to move to independence, he was a little bit too friendly with the Soviet. And the U.S. didn't want another Cuba situation. So what they did was they went in and they uh, created a racial war between the two ethnic groups there, the, the blacks and the Indians. And it got really, really bad. And then they used it as an excuse to uh, suspend parliament and then send somebody else in who wasn't ma who magically wasn't really uh, a, a pro-Soviet anymore. The, the, the fallout from that still lasted many decades later in terms of this um, animosity between these two groups. And, and of course, there probably was some underlying tension to begin with, just like there was in, 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 in Hong Kong. But this is not a theory in Guyana. Those CIA documents are already declassified. And I can't help but think... When you look at Jimmy Lai, you look at how many of these top officials he's hanging out with and, you know, buddy-buddy with, it just looks like they dusted off an old guidebook, you know? Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the differences between the kind of, you know, decades past of CIA activity, not that the CIA is not involved in, uh, in you know, regime change plots all over the place, 
Um, and I think it's a pretty safe bet that the CIA was involved in, in Hong Kong. Um, you know, and especially, uh, what's his name? Mark Simon, Jimmy Lai's right-hand man is, he interned with the CIA. He's a former, you know, naval intelligence uh, officer. Um, but, you know, in the, basically in the 80s, after the CIA had been involved, basically armed death squads in uh, Central America, Latin America, kind of all over the world, had really sullied its reputation. Um, there was a shift in strategy from doing it kind of under the table um, to basically doing it above board. So they created what's called the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a much more, you know, benign sounding uh, name. Um, and so, so pleasant. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's basically one of the main regime change arms of the U.S. And according, you know, to the to the founder of the National Endowment for Democracy, Alan Weinstein, he says, we just, you know, do what the CIA used to do, but we just do it kind of in the open now. And so it's like when you, you know, you can go on the National Endowment for Democracy's website and look at all the money they pour into these, you know, Hong Kong groups and not only Hong Kong, but all over the world, the pro-democracy, you know, I want to make these air quotes very visible, pro-democracy <laughs> groups um, all over the world. And so it essentially serves the same function, but instead of, you know, being in, you know, like dark alleys or whatever, then it's it's now just considered like democracy promotion. Um, but that's not to say that the CIA is not, you know, itself is not involved. The CIA is still extremely active and I would say more powerful than ever, um, especially in internal U.S. politics, which is another story. But um, I mean, I think it's I think it's fair to say that, you know, the Hong Kong stuff is is a U.S. plot in the sense that the U.S. was very much involved. Um, and a lot of the money came from the U.S. And Jimmy Lai was obviously coordinating what he did with the U.S. I mean, he came here, he came here to Washington and met, you know, with Mike Pence. I mean, it's it's all out in the open. And so it's like, if we're, there may be some conspiracy we don't know about, and I don't doubt it. Um, but, you know, we don't even have to look for a, some secret yeah. conspiracy. It's just out in the open. Yeah, I mean, they, they do. I mean, there was that one guy, um, the director of Asian, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly the title from Washington, D.C. He was on um, one of the Fox programs saying, absolutely, we're pouring money into Hong Kong. Exactly. Spent millions and millions of dollars on this. If you look on the um, the annual returns of uh, some of the university uh, legal departments, they're NED, they get they money from the uh, from the NED. And exactly. um, yeah, it, it, and then just to, to, to go that deep where it just, like I said earlier, yeah, yeah, Joshua Wong heading to the U.S. to sit down and, and testify in front of Congress. Then the the uh, the equal ridiculousness of people like um, Senator Josh Hawley coming over to Hong Kong to support the, um, the, the 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 protesters and call police brutality, even though you look at his record in terms of uh, when when the protests were in his own state of Missouri, he had strong words for them and said right. that they would be prosecuted and you know fully by the law. And, and you look at how many months this has been going on in Hong Kong, how many people have been injured, how many shops have been burned down, and the police are, still haven't killed anybody. You know, right. there's conspiracy out there, but if you look at how much worse it would have been anywhere else, I, I just, I, I, it's it's amazing that um, people aren't seeing this and putting two together, two, two and two together. I've gone a little bit off topic there with that, but it's just, the whole thing is just pretty infuriating. Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, police have a responsibility i mean in the u.s there's a very strong anti-police sentiment on uh on the left which i frankly agree with um considering what you know i'm i'm not um 
reflexively anti-police, but, you know, it's like, look, if someone's going to rob my house, I would like for the police to come and, you know, protect me. Um, but considering how the police often operate in this country where they're just a tool of the, of the elite, um, you know, where, you know, I mean, a, uh, a corporation can get away with murder, but, you know, a guy like Eric Garner and, you know, and who is selling, you know, single cigarettes on the street got choked to death by police and cop got off and nothing happened. Um, you know, so I think, you know, when you look at how Hong Kong police, um, acted, they were, I mean, maybe, you know, there's an incident here or there of some frustration or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, by and large, um, they were extremely professional and responsible. And, you know, I think it's, I think frankly, they should be commended. Um, but you know, when I look at like Joshua Wong is so interesting because he, you know, he was in Italy a few months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Or actually, he didn't go to Italy, but he had like a Skype session with the Italian parliament. And he okay. was he was tweeting, um, you know, don't fall under, under the Chinese spell, you know, saying this to the Italians and just doing everything possible to disrupt uh, the Chinese-Italian relationship. Um, you know, because China or uh, Italy joined um, the Belt and Road initi- Initiative. Um, and had, you know, that actually caused Joshua Wong, you know, Skyping with um, the Italian parliament actually caused some minor diplomatic incident between Italy and China. And, you know, when I look now, had that um, kind of, you know, become something really serious, like really ruptured that relationship, Italy is in bad shape right now. And China is one of, and China is first and foremost helping um, helping Italy with its with its COVID nineteen crisis, um, and so if that relationship were not there, how much worse shape would Italy be in? Not only, um, you know, economically, I don't know, but but in terms of you know getting that help, getting the training, getting you know getting people to quarantine properly, this kind of thing to kind of stop the hemorrhaging. Um, so I think it really says a lot about you know not like Joshua Wong's um, goals, but also kind of, you know, his masters, Marco Rubio and, and these guys in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how so many people think of this guy as a hero when you just have to go look through his tweets, you just have to go look through his tweets. You know, we had a guy that was burned to death uh, or not burned to death, but he was burned very severely in Hong Kong. He was lit on fire. And he was on his Twitter glorifying people who use Molotov cocktails as fire magicians. Is right. What he called that. I remember. And yeah. Yeah. With this article, uh, you know, talking about basically glorifying them as these superheroes. It's like, really? And people, I just, it, it, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so shameless. Um, you know, it's like, where are the moderates? <laughs> you know, where, yeah. where are the yeah. moderate Hong Kong protesters? You know, that like I've, I have no doubt that there, I mean, actually, you know, I, I yeah. talk about it in my video, in my article, there are legitimate things to complain about inequality, these kinds of things, but mm-hmm. it's like taking it out on working class people who are just trying to get by their daily lives is just the exact opposite of yeah. how to properly address it. Well, and, yeah, and the other thing, yeah, yeah, the other thing too, is people are using this um, uh, freedom expression or democracy without actually thinking about what it means. You know, when you look at the the Freedom House that says 70% of democracies around the world lack basic uh, freedoms. When you look at the Cato Institute's report on the, um, uh, uh, fr- the Human Freedom Index, you know, Hong Kong is number three 
and America is number 17 and they're coming to save Hong Kong. And that, that's uh, the, that, that report, the Cato Institute report, they, it's not a, a pro-Beijing uh, uh, report. They spend, it's a, like a hundred page document. They spend three days, uh, three uh, pages bashing China. And, uh, but the thing is, is they use hard math, measurable freedoms in terms of incarceration rates, size of government, healthcare, taxation, all this stuff. And Hong Kong is one of the freest places on earth. And, and so it's like when you sit down in a conversation with these guys, and I have, I've had people who came over from my brew pub from Hong Kong who are, you know, for the protesters, the pro protesters, I, I want to ask them, I said, what is it? What, like, what do you mean by freedom? And I don't really get a good answer. Sometimes they talk about budget concerns, about some money going towards the 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 the, the Zhuhai Bridge, the Zhuhai Macau Bridge, and all this stuff. I'm like, give me something a little bit more substantial. If all of a sudden you could, you know, uh, vote for your own chief executive, what is the first thing about society in Hong Kong that you would change? What what is it that's not there for you right now? There's people who talk about housing issues in terms of land prices and all this stuff, but when you look at that, these are these are um, issues that are out in front of uh, the LegCo. These are issues that a lot of the Democratic Party members vote against in terms of opening up land for more uh, projects. And you don't really get anything substantial. And I, I, I take an open-minded approach to it. I have a lot of friends who are protesters, who do protest, and I'm fascinated about um, their point of view, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to add up. Right. Well, it's like, if you're going to protest, why do you want the US model? I mean, look at I don't know. I mean, to me, you know, the, 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 how the U.S. has just completely botched the response to coronavirus shows, you know, I mean, to me, it totally discredits the system over here. And it's not just a matter of, you know, Trump did a bad job. I mean, it, it's totally systemic. And so it's like, is this what Hong Kong wants to emulate? Where it's like everything, all the institutions have been totally gutted out. Um, and it's just basically a playground for billionaires, um, you know, where working people or it's just like work until you die. And if you, you know, you have nothing to fall back on, if something happens where the economy gets shut down, for, you know, for a week, then you can't feed your family, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, I hate this. I hate to say this because I do love, you know, my country. I, I, I do love where I'm from and I love the mm -hmm. people here and I, and, Absolutely, yeah. um, but it's like, the system here has been totally discredited and the same people, you know, that Marco Rubio and, and all, you know, the billion and Marco Rubio is, you know, just a, just a political figure, but the billionaire ruling class that is destroying, you know, the U S that's just, you know, pulling the rug out from, from everyone um, is the same ruling class that hates China. And it's not because, you know, they, it's not, it's not for the same reasons that protesters in Hong Kong hate China. It's because they want, you know, China to be weak and isolated and they just want to be able to dominate the world. That's it. They don't care about democracy or, you know, housing prices or, you know, land or this or that. I mean, they, they just want to be able to, to take wealth. That's it. Yeah, I mean, that was made pretty apparent by the um, uh, the, the Iraqi situation, right, with uh, the parliament, the voted in parliament. Um, which is exactly what um, the U.S. wanted is to bring democracy and freedom to the people. When they voted that they wanted the U.S. soldiers to leave, it was like, mm, uh, not, there's some conditions attached there. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, exactly. It's like, it's like, okay, all right, well, now, now we see. And um, now it was, it, was, it was pretty remarkable. But you know what, what I want to say is, because I think that's important, is to, to, to note that 
you're talking about how uh, the system is broken in the U.S. It doesn't mean you don't love the U.S. I mean, and on the contrary, by speaking out against this stuff, saying what's wrong with our foreign policy, what's wrong with our country, and pointing out um, the uh, the irony and the hypocrisy of what's going on actually could result in improving your country. But what I'm wondering is, you know, especially when you speak out about this Hong Kong stuff, and when I'm thinking about um, what happened to LeBron James when he spoke out about the uh, oh, no, he didn't even speak out. He didn't even have an opinion. He said, I think we don't know enough. And he was just blasted for having the wrong opinion. And so I can only imagine for you to take taking it one step further. It's worth mentioning what he said. Maybe we're not uh, informed well enough in Hong Kong is not only true. It's a massive understatement. But now we've got somebody like you who takes it one step forward and says, no, I have an opinion and we are absolutely wrong about how we're looking at it. How much hate do you receive for doing that? Uh, I got a fair <laughs> amount of hate definitely for that. But I mean, you know, at this point, that's kind of my like barometer of success. If I'm if I'm getting <laughs> hate, I'm trying to get it from the right people. You know, you want it's like my point as a journalist, uh, you know, with these issues, I, I want to take things on that are that others are like too afraid to, or they can't or what, or whatever it is. And so if I'm getting hate from the worst people and I know I'm doing a good job. Um, and so I definitely got a fair amount. Um, I got some, some real obsessives and you know, the funny thing is most of the obsessives that I got were Western, you know, Americans or Canadians who are in Hong Kong. Um, you know, it was actually not that many, you know, Hong Kong, uh, people like from Hong Kong or or like Chinese people in general. It was um, it was it was almost all all Westerners. Oh yeah, the 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 really extreme one is that uh, Hong Kong hermit guy. Oh yeah, he yeah, is, uh, yeah. He is something else. Like I mean, he posts these things where he, uh, he there was one guy. There was a journalist who was hit by a Molotov cocktail. And um, he uh, he basically apologized on behalf of the protesters, saying, you know, we're not always going to get this right. So basically what he's saying is they do want to light people on fire and they apologize for lighting the wrong person on fire. He did the same thing with uh, when they burned down um, uh, Shanghai Bank or, 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 or Bank of Shanghai or something like that. Uh, the protesters burnt it down and then they realized that actually it's got nothing to do with the mainland. It's completely a Hong Kong company. Same thing. He came out and said, you know what? The, the important thing for us to be bigger people is to come out and say when we got it wrong and we got this wrong. I'm sorry. So again, he's saying, yes, we are going to be burning down banks that are involved with it. It's like, and this guy's, this guy, this guy's a, a, he's a, he's a school teacher. He teaches children. That's his main, his main job. And I'm just thinking like these kids growing up with a guy with this kind of a messed up mind. <laughs> it's scary. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Hong Kong hermit. He looks like he kind of like he, he like belongs at a cabana bar in like some like <laughs> Caribbean island, like you know, ogling the waitress. But somehow he ended up in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and he like say that. Uh, I I don't yeah. know. He's he was he was really obsessive and aggressive. And uh, I mean, I saw one video of him where he was trying to he, like it's, his whole job. It seems like to me is to try to give like left wing cover to this obviously like right wing xenophobic violent whole <laughs> mob thing. Um, yeah. And so like there was one video I saw of him where he is trying to confront uh, these like, uh, like hard right wing figures yes, from the U S do you see that? Yeah. Oh, it's so hilarious. Yeah. And he's trying to say like, no, no, don't talk to them. Don't talk to them. And he's trying to tell the crowd, don't talk to them. And, and then these like, these like right wing Americans are like, 
yeah, we support freedom for Hong Kong. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, thank you. We're with you. And, and then they just like it pretty was, much told him to shut up and, and go away. And he had no I, choice. I posted that and I said, it's like, you know, you've got an American guy waving an American flag in the street, arguing with a British guy in the streets of Hong Kong, arguing about what's best for Hong Kong. It's like a Monty Python skit or something like that. <laughs> it was just like out of this world, you know? And, and he doesn't have a consistent, you know, so when this was, when this was happening and the economy was suffering in, um, in Hong Kong, he, he, he posted something about we don't care about the economy, we care about freedom or something like that, that this is the most important thing. And when you look back at his tweets, back when um, uh, Beijing barred a, a U.S. Navy ship from docking in uh, Hong Kong like they usually do, he took offense at that. And he says, what about our economy? These people will spend so much money in the bars and stuff like that. Maybe the bars should sh sue the Hong Kong government. It's like, <laughs> what's going on? No here? consistency. No, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you you mentioned LeBron James. I mean, that was one of the most fascinating. That was a really fascinating. For me, too. Yeah. I mean, obviously, LeBron, one of the greatest athletes in the world and just a global icon. And I mean, you know, just like superhuman basketball player. Um, and, you know, he's not really a very outspoken political guy. I mean, he's made his statements, of, you know, a few times around Black Lives Matter in like 2015, I think. Um, 2014, 2015, but you know, I mean, he, yeah, he he said a very, um, I think, reasonable statement that didn't really take any kind of side, but like, uh, I, you know, we don't really know much about this, and we should maybe learn more. And he got attacked so much oh, in the U.S. Yeah. And what was, I mean, it's like people. Ex for one thing, there's like people. People on one hand in the U.S want athletes to entertain them. And, you know, they always say, like, when they, when they, make, when they make political statements, they say, shut up and dribble. Up. That's exactly what one of his teammates right. said. Right, yeah, I right. saw that video. Yeah, Andre Iguodala, who's, who's, a, who's a great player and a super sharp guy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then it's like, but you have to speak up on Hong Kong. You know, you better speak yeah. up on this. And it's like, you better have the right opinions. And it's so yeah. obviously racist to me. It, it was it was a witch hunt. It was a witch hunt through the NBA. And I couldn't help but think, like, it's like McCarthyism all over again. The Red Scare. Totally. Where, you know, you know it, it's like, not, not, only, um, not only are we going to hunt you down and you have to speak up, you better have the correct opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it's like, and then it's like when, you know, if they were, they were, uh, they were like, oh, China is censoring uh, American free speech, which is like the most asinine argument I've ever heard. As if, like, China is not forcing LeBron James or or anyone to be quiet. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. just that's what LeBron chose to say, and so that whole argument is so weird to me because it's basically like the it's what it's what the far right says it's like here like when you say when the far right in the US says something like racist and then they there's pushback against it they'll say, you know which is basically free speech versus free speech then they'll say oh there's you're censoring me you're censoring me you know you can you can't censor me that's like some authoritarian you know totalitarian thing and it's like no you can't say you can't like that's just someone else exercising their free speech and so that's like what a lot of liberals in the U.S. did too with LeBron James. They were like, "Oh, they're you know, uh, China is censoring censoring us and censoring LeBron James and all this stuff." And it's adopted this like far right uh, kind of talking point that they understand correctly 
they understand that it's not actually censorship when it comes to like domestic politics. But when it comes to like China, you know, liberals become like right wing cold warriors, too. It's really weird. It is really weird. You know, it's surprising that people just couldn't see through this witch hunt, or this, or this, uh, you know, hysteria, especially because we've got history as a reference. You know, people can, people, but it seems like we're never doing that, whether it be the, you know, the, the Iraqi uh, WMD thing. Like we, we know that we're being lied to, but we never do anything with it. I did see, though, there was a really interesting tweet that was both um, sad and encouraging at the same time. There was a girl who tweeted and she said um, something along the lines of, I'm 19 years old, I finished high school, and I never learned about the Iraq war, which is just like not too long ago. She had to learn about it from her friend. And so that's sad, um, but it's encouraging that she came to the realization that this is a problem. And it was encouraging to see how many people liked it and retweeted it. Um, and I actually asked her a question because I found that she was really introspective. And I, I've had this um, question uh, for quite a while. I didn't get an answer because it's just, her tweet has just blown up. She's probably getting a lot of uh, comments under it. But what I wanted to ask was if she knows about both the Tiananmen Square incident and the um, uh, Kent State shootings where police opened up fire on the, on the students, which is coming up to, I think it's its 50-year anniversary coming up, if she knows about both of them, which did she learn about first? And so I didn't get an answer uh, uh, about that. So I wonder what it was for you or what you think the answer probably would be. Like, do most people in America know about Tiananmen Square while not knowing anything about the Kent State shootings? Or do they learn about them at different times? What, what's your kind of thought on that? Uh, definitely. Well, for myself, I learned about Kent State first for whatever reason, just because I, my, I don't know, my family... My family's not even really political, but, you know, my parents are kind of of that generation to a degree. Okay. And so, and uh, also there's the, there's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song. Um, uh, oh, the name of it, I've totally forgotten, but it's about Kent State. And I grew up, Okay. my parents raised me listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but it's, you know, it's about four dead in Ohio. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's about the National Guard opening fire on these student protesters who are, you know, protesting the Vietnam War. Um, and, but I mean, most people, yeah, they have no idea what Kent state is. Um, and they definitely know about Tiananmen square, you know, I mean, that's like burned into American yeah, consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And, and they cut, yeah. Even though if you look at the original, I think it was CBS footage of the guy, you know, standing in front of the tank and stuff like that. And the tank just refuses to move forward. And he, he keeps trying to move and the tank keeps trying to dodge right. him. And eventually the tank just stops. He even climbs up on top of it. Then his friends get him and say, okay, no, no, let's go. And then he, he, he goes off into the crowd. What, you know, people have cut that, right? Where you just have to fill in the end with your imagination and imagine that he was run over. Right. And then, for, and then, the, and then the same thing is um, they, they probably don't know about the um, uh, war vets where the tanks came in and ran tried to run over them and ran over all of their uh, structures. There was that uh, in, in the U in U S history. And I'm, that one I've asked a lot of people. Not many people know about that one. I don't think I know about that actually. Yeah, I'll have to share. No, maybe I'll put it in the video link. There was, um, it was. Uh, it, I, they were ex. Uh, I, ha I have to. Look There's so many. There are so many horrible yeah. incidents in the history of the U.S. that it's like even domestically that it's like it's. I'm not saying it's impossible to keep track of all these, but it's. Like it takes work, definitely. It's not like there's like a couple of seminal moments. It's like, man, there is so much. Um, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think there was maybe like, I don't know. I don't want to get into speculation. There's, you just have to like look on YouTube for the like the like hundreds of like police shootings of unarmed people. That it's like it's horrifying. Snuff videos, 
you know, all the time. And I just, yeah. I can't imagine living outside of the U S how it must look to like, it's like, I live here. So it's like kind of like normalized for me in a way, but it's like, if I lived in like China or I don't know, somewhere, I would just be like, what an insane country the U S is. You know what, you, you know what, actually, uh, you'd be surprised, um, how much of a positive view Chinese people have about, uh, the U S um, they, uh, of course, the, from a political standpoint, um, they really uh, dislike the U.S. In, for this period of time, but they think it's a beautiful country. They think it's an amazing country and they'd like to visit it because we don't they don't have the same kind of stuff here where they're villainizing the U.S. Right. in the same kind of way, including its people. Right. You know, where, where you see on Twitter, you see. You know, for example, uh, during the uh, uh, original parts of the virus, you know, if you look on Twitter, there was some there was a person here who put their spit on the on the elevator buttons here, you know, in one of the buildings and somebody reposted it to say this is China. And, you know, but right. you don't see people in China doing the same thing when the uh, Amazon delivery guy spit on the package. Uh, they don't you don't see people doing that here saying this is America. You know, you might get one or two people who, who are, are uh, bigoted or something like that, but you'd be surprised how much China censors if it's insulting, not only towards their own people, but to other people. There's a guy on YouTube who does a lot of really good analysis, a lot of videos on China. And also he did one blasting the New York Times uh, for its really unfair uh, coverage about uh, China. And when he posted it on uh, Chinese social media, Chinese social media removed it because it was too inflammatory towards the New York Times. <laughs> so, like, amazing yeah, seriously so you don't get the same kind of thing but then it creates the situation so my wife is chinese and the first time i took her to the u.s we drove uh, from uh, i'm from toronto we drove across and we went through buffalo and there's some pretty rough neighborhoods in buffalo you know boarded up homes and stuff like that and she's like we're in america this is america and and, and so if anything they have um a, a better image of america than uh, many of the right uh, they don't know as much about the issues how much of that do you think has to do with hollywood and basically you know what i mean i think hollywood serves a role as kind of it's cultural oh, yeah, imperialism yeah, yeah absolutely i mean even in in canada we grow up with you know all of the superheroes are american you exactly. know, superheroes for the most part and of course, of course, that's going to have a um, an effect. To, to to tell you about the uh, the article I was talking about, so it was when Patton rolled uh, tanks over veterans in Washington D.C. Right. Yes, and it was 1932. Seventeen thousand former soldiers marched to Washington D.C., and then the tanks just rolled down the streets. Um, Apparently, there were people who died, but I think they were rolling over most of their kind of structures that they had built to camp out there and stuff like that. And and so I mean even you you had to think twice about that T right right right, right. It's, it rang you the know bell right away right these tanks <laughs> right yeah 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 exactly and Patton is considered like a hero in the U S like a you know the World War II like greatest general I mean he's in like the pantheon of American heroes um, I saw somebody on Twitter today who you know had some viral tweet about like we need a general Patton of you know the coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> so i mean yeah, yeah yeah all that stuff is just totally erased from consciousness yeah there. yeah um getting back to some of the the hate uh, that you get um I'm, I'm, I'm interested in talking about that a little bit more because i obviously i get a lot with my position as well and um i understand the value of using uh, the block button for some people so i don't pe judge people who do but i never did i pretty much let everybody comment um for people to see what kinds of opinions there are out there on my YouTube videos, I even actually uh, super like and pin some of the comments that are critical of my position. 
but they're very uh, few and far between. So what I want to know is what, what have you seen with what you're doing? Do you see uh, like uh, valid criticisms or just more is it towards the side of just being offended that you challenge the, the narrative rather than actually disputing particular facts? Yeah, pretty much all of it. I mean, you know, I would like valid criticisms because it's like this is, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on on Hong Kong or China by any stretch. And it's like if there are weaknesses in what I'm saying or my article or any of that stuff, I really want to know. Um, right. But I mean, pretty much everything I got was just vicious hatred where, you know, <laughs> I mean, but so it doesn't it doesn't really phase me when when I get that. It means it's like a kind of just like, OK, great. Um it, it tells me that I'm kind of on, I'm probably on the right track if I'm pissing off the right people, <laughs> like I said. And um, also, like, I've had that same experience with, you know, reporting on other issues like Syria, Venezuela, Israel, Palestine, that kind of thing. And so it's like, I know that there's basically gangs of like trolls and people who are um, kind of police the narrative online that, you know, if you, if you break from the narrative at all, if you kind of offer a counter narrative, then you're just going to be viciously attacked. Yeah, that, that's that's really amazing, isn't it? That you have a population of people who think they are free, who are acting as voluntary soldiers for U.S. propaganda. That where if they identify somebody who's even speaking up against or has a different idea, they are on you and they're attacking you. And it's like you're free, but you're completely mindlessly acting as a voluntary you know, soldier for this effort. Exactly. And it's, I mean, the goal is to get you to self-censor where it's like, oh, it's too much. You know, I don't want to deal with the harassment, the online harassment. So it's like, I'm not even going to bother with it. And it makes, you know, I mean, it's, it is unfortunate because it makes Twitter, you know, and, and Twitter especially a very, very negative place um, yeah, where yeah. I've had, you know, basically um, what are clearly, you know, counterintelligence operations where people have, um, you know, shady figures that pr have pretty clear connections to intelligence agencies um, have, you know, like U.S. intelligence or British have dug up into my personal life and lied about, you know, details of my personal life that it's like, how could they, you know, you, like... You, yeah, those ones are really interesting. I saw somebody who uh, called one of them out. Well, aside from there was there was one uh, Uyghur activist who was going to do an AMA on Reddit um, about um, uh, Uyghurs in um, so-called internment camps and, you know, all of this stuff. And before the AMA, somebody revealed that she actually really legitimately worked for the CIA and she was involved <laughs> in Guantanamo Bay. Oh, yeah. And so. Ruslan yeah. Abbas, I think is her name. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. And, and the, and the uh, AMA just was loaded with questions like, what was it like, uh, you know, working with Guantanamo Bay? Do you see the irony here about uh, torturing people there while talking about, you know, and I don't think she actually went through with the AMA in the end because of it. Um, it was just hilarious. But then you get the people on Twitter, the same kind of thing. And they are sponsored by groups that lead back to um, arms manufacturers. And so somebody pointed out the uh, uh, the irony of it, saying that here you have um, a, a human rights activist calling me a tanky while working for a company that actually manufactures tanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, they're the real tankies, exactly. It's like they're accusing us like anti-war people of being of being like pro-war. And it's like, come on, you people are like the most aggressive, like, you know, like war loving fanatics around. It's unbelievable. But so do you find when you're doing this and you get all this hate, 
because it takes, a, it, like you said, it's unfortunate because it does prevent uh, uh, speech because it does become too much for, for some people. You need a certain thickness of skin. You need a certain personality to deal with it. But do you ever find yourself catching yourself and say, and having to readjust yourself to really keep your mood in check? And I'll give you an example from me. So for example, with uh, YouTube, I was getting uh, all of these kind of common, th the thing that bothers me most is not somebody disagreeing with me. It's having a super ignorant comment that um, just the logic is so flawed and people can't understand why, uh, what's wrong with it. And I started addressing them and I started talking about them and slowly I was speaking more to my detractors than my supporters or the people who are in the middle ground who maybe I can convince to look at things in a different way. And I was reminded by some of my followers, they said, hey, Daniel, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking to these people? You're not going to get through to them and we're here to listen. Can you be more, a little bit more, you know? And it readjusted me. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know what? I, I think I need to readjust my attitude. Did you ever find your attitude going in a direction where you didn't want it to go and have to kind of reset yourself also? Yeah, to a degree. Um, I mean, it's easy to get, you know, reactionary or aggressive or, yeah. or whatever, you know, but I think it's, I mean, I, I kind of just see, you know, these people's opportunities. It's like when, when someone is reacting that strongly to me making a reasonable argument, it's like it shows, you know, it's like it shows that my argument is stronger and they can't actually challenge it on any logical grounds. And so the only thing they can do is try to defame you emotion. and slander you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and attack your character. And so I kind of, it's like, you know, when I'm in my higher level, you know, my higher level thinking, I'm like more responsible. I'm like, all right, this is an opportunity to advance my argument, to show my followers, you know, people who are looking to me to understand this issue, you know, this is the counter argument is like, like, this is what the opposition has to offer. Yeah, that, that is a very valuable point of it. When you're making future content, you can already imagine um, uh, uh, what some of the uh, detractors will say, and you can come up and you can test your own argument by giving yourself a counter argument while you're delivering um, whatever it is you're saying. So there, there is value. And obviously we can't respond to all of those people individually, even though how much you'd like to say, uh, that's flawed because of this. But eventually you have to get to a point where you're in the right mindset. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to approach it. I'm not going to get upset by these. I'm going to leave them there. Um, it really is quite a, quite a, quite an experience doing this. Definitely. Definitely. And, uh, it's important to like, you know, not get too deep into it and, you know, be based in reality too, because it's easy for people to spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I uh, I had a, a talk with uh, somebody a couple of days ago named uh, Kim Kim Iverson, and she uh, quit Twitter, uh, but that was before her uh, kind of isolation uh, thing that she's doing now, um, because she says it's just too negative and it makes her a worse person. Um, and, and, but now she's back on Twitter because she's got, she's at home and she's got a lot right. of extra time, Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it really is, Twitter's a, a special place in that regard in terms of bringing out, uh, kind of the lowest of the low. It It is. I mean, it's Twitter's a, a funny thing. Cause it's like, on one hand, it's, uh, can be just a real cesspool for negativity, but it's also kind of a, a battleground for the intelligentsia in a way. Where it's like, you know, you can interact with all kinds of prominent people who you just never have the chance to otherwise. And sure. you can, yeah. Yeah. you know, meet. I mean, that's how, you know, you and I know each other. And you can meet, you right. can yeah. meet yeah. really great people. I mean, I've met, you know, through my Hong Kong stuff, you know, most of the, most of the, um, I got, a, I got a lot of, a lot of hate from a few people who are just kind of obsessed with attacking me, attacking me. And so that was like, you know, not pleasant, whatever. 
Um, but I met some really great people through that who, I mean, when I look, when I look back at, you know, that kind of couple months where I was like very focused on the on Hong Kong, I had, it was an overwhelmingly positive experience because of the really good people that I met and the learning experience that I had. So I think, you know, it's about using it in the right way. And, you know, if you kind of take it to heart too much, then, um, then it, it can be overwhelming and, and, you know, bleed into your personal life. But yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's important to note. There is um, through all of that garbage on there. There's a lot of value if you can find. You know, you follow the right people, and not necessarily people that agree with you. I follow a bunch of people who are completely against my opinion, and some of them even uh, a couple. Of, obviously, I can't communicate with all of them, but a couple of them who have strong, pretty strong arguments. I built a personal relationship with them and we chat through private chat and they're regularly sending me articles. They're completely biased and they're always sending me the worst of the worst to try to prove their point. But it's a very valuable um, exchange um, for, for, I don't know whether it's valuable for them. Maybe I'll never ever change their mind, but I, I take value <laughs> from it seeing, okay, this is what people are thinking. This is what, uh, how they react to it. Or even sometimes adjusting my own opinion. Sometimes it will adjust my opinion saying, okay, all right, maybe I missed the mark on that one. And, uh, they, 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 they have a point sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it would have been easy for me to say, you know, it's like, okay, the, you know, Hong Kong is just a U.S. plot and there's no, you know, there's no background, there's no anything, but it's, and, you know, obviously there's more to it. Not that my detractors told me that, but it's like, you know, people could definitely tell me that. And, uh, you know, that, that would, that would be valuable. Yeah. 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 So um, one thing I, I, I've always been kind of curious about, and, um, you know, I, I know you're connected now with uh, Max Blumenthal, who's an amazingly talented guy who did a really great uh, mini documentary on the NED and uh, with Radio Free Asia, talking about uh, Radio Free Asia and the misinformation campaign from the U.S. And it was really shocking to see when um, he was arrested in Washington, D.C., you know, by a SWAT team. And on the on the on the arrest warrant, it said armed and dangerous, even though he's never owned a gun in his life. And to me, it almost seemed like it was a, a, a message uh, to journalists who are uncovering things like um, he is. And obviously, Julian Assange would be the ultimate example of that. Do you ever wonder uh, do you ever think that maybe there's a chance where you're eventually going to cross a line where you will be a little bit of a target, whether they'll go as far as doing what they did to Max and arresting you to, 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 uh, to intimidate you? Do you ever think about that or do you think really it won't, uh, you're, not, you're not at risk of that? Um, you know, I think it's like if there are certain things that if I went after, then definitely could become uh, a target. Um, and that possibility does exist. Not to, you know, say that I'm like some... I mean, you know, Max is a much more pro more prominent uh, uh, and accomplished journalist than I am, um, and you know, he's he's kind of a lightning rod for controversy, um, in and has been for you know as long, pretty much as long as he's been in journalism, um, and now more than ever because he's gotten you know gone from kind of you know domestic politics to you know Israel Palestine was his thing for for some years, and he he you know, made a lot of people angry with that. And now, you know, he's more, he's very focused on like geopolitics. Um, uh, and so, you know, he's, he's more of a lightning rod than he's ever been. Um, but, you know, which is, which is really his, his uh, sign of success. I see it as, um, for myself, I mean, I don't feel like I'm under any kind of threat. I think it's mostly like, if anything, it's more, you know, like I said, those, uh, um, 
counterintelligence operations where it's trying to, you know, trying to create smears about me. There was one that I like abused an ex-girlfriend because she uh, didn't support Assad and like crazy things like crazy things like that, which are like kind of funny, but uh, also come just... up with something more believable. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if uh, I hope not, but who knows where this country is going. And, you know, I, I can't, I certainly can't live in a state of, uh, of fear. Um, and, you know, if, if, uh, if things get really hot here, maybe I'll have to escape to like China or Venezuela or something. <laughs> that, would be, that would be ironic, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, you, before, before I uh, wrap this up, um, one other thing I just thought of as you were talking about this uh, was, you know, we, we've seen everybody's well, not everybody's seen a lot of people have seen videos of, you know, Pompeo up on stage uh, talking about what he did as a CIA director. The whole thing was they lied, they cheat, they steal and they had entire training manuals on this. And, and perhaps even more shocking than him saying that seeing the audience cheer him for it. Um, you know, I think that was I believe it was in Texas that that, that talk was. Yeah. And um, so it makes me think and it makes me wonder how many people in the U.S., how many ordinary citizens or the masses how many of them really, truly believe that U.S. foreign policy is a force for good in the world? And how many of them know, deep down inside, they know that it's absolutely sinister, uh, but they're just okay with it because of the benefits to their own country or whatever it may be? What, what, what would you say that balance is? Do, are most people really fooled or they're complacent, deliberately complacent? I think a lot of people um, think that the U.S. is generally a force for good, but at the same time, they are skeptical about getting involved in more wars. Um, and they know that those haven't, you know, really worked out. Um, you know, they know that everyone knows that Iraq was a lie, that, you know, Iraqi WMDs were a lie. Um, not everyone knows that, you know, the Syria chemical weapons, you know, attack and the scandal that's engulfing the OPCW that, you know, Piers Robinson has done a lot of really good work with. And, um, you know, you can read a lot about that at, Gray Zone project. Um, Aaron Mate has covered it. I did a lot. I did. Uh, uh, I've done some videos about that. Um, so I think people are very skeptical of war, and a lot of it is because they're you know the situation in the U.S. is really bad, and they just don't see um, you know why should we go to war with another country, even if they don't think you know see that the U.S. is necessarily like this you know global empire that just wants to like you know rob you know, other countries' wealth and dominate in, in every corner. Um, you know, I think when you look at Syria, there was a huge, massive propaganda effort to convince um, the to convince Americans that we need to, you know, overthrow the Assad government. Um, and the U.S. tried really hard, poured the Obama administration and then, and then Trump, um, tried really hard, poured huge amounts of money and weapons into Syria in an effort to do that. And at the same time, pumped out an enormous amount of very sophisticated propaganda, um, more sophisticated than I've actually ever seen. I, actually, I did a, a video um, that kind of debunks some of it. It's called the Syria Deception that you can you can watch on YouTube. Okay. Um, it's called the Syria Deception, Al-Qaeda Goes to Hollywood. Um, okay. Is it on your own channel? Is it on your? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, I'll, I'll link it in the description. Okay, cool, after. cool. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it kind of shows some of the deceptions that, you know, were all throughout mainstream media, Netflix, and all over the place. Um, 
so you know there is a there's just so much effort that goes into convincing Americans to go to war. I think because there's skepticism now. You know, we know that the Iraq thing changed changed it all. I mean, we we're lied to about Vietnam also, and and you know, but that was decades ago, and I think but people it keeps just happening over and over again. So it's true. The, it, it sounds like the answer is. is um, most people think they're doing something good. They learn afterwards that, oh, that wasn't so good, but they're still fooled the next time around. That's often the case. But I think what what changes and what has shifted is that the domestic situation is unstable in the U.S. And more and more people are suffering from like gross inequality. And so they see like, you know, why should we get involved in more wars and, you know, that kind of okay. thing. I think yeah, I guess it's changing. easier to keep people focused on elsewhere um, and kind of virtue signaling others when you more or less have your your your, your crap at order in order at home, for lack of a better word. But um, yeah, if you've got uh, uh, domestic issues mounting, then it, it'll be a lot harder to care about what's going on um, somewhere else. There was one thing that I thought that was kind of encouraging, which was um, when there was the, a missile attack, and, they, and, and uh, this was before uh, uh, Soleimani was uh, assassinated, it was a missile attack on, it was either a ship or on the oil, uh, on the oil fields, whatever it was. But I did see um, somebody uh, post when they were trying to blame Iran for this. They're like, yeah, right, we've seen this before. And there were actually people who were really skeptical about it. They got lots of retweets, but it, it didn't stop anything. The U.S. still went and they still assassinated a foreign general in a, in a land that they've got no jurisdiction in. And people just kind of forgot about it. Um, so I, I don't know if, it, if this is an issue of people just being uh, too complacent or the, the propaganda machines just becoming so much more sophisticated or a combination of both. But um, it really has been an interesting thing to observe. I mean, I think there wasn't huge support for the Soleimani assassination. Um and, you know, that's despite, I mean, pretty sophisticated propaganda with that. Um, and, I mean, the majority of media on that was, like, basically, was actually not totally on board with, with Trump's, you know, decision to assassinate. They, okay. they basically said, um, strategically, you know, we don't have any problem with assassinating uh, this general, uh, you know, from a legal or moral perspective. You know, we have no problem with assassinating a foreign leader. Um, what we have a problem with is just the way it was done. You know, is this gonna, um, you know, is this gonna backfire? You know, is this gonna like alienate our allies? This, that, how's this gonna work out? Um, and they, you know, admitted that the Obama administration had considered assassinating him as well. Um, but chose not to because, you know, they weren't sure of what would happen. And so, I mean, that's, that's generally the criticism from kind of the establishment in the U S yeah, that's yeah. generally the criticism of Trump is that he's not, you know, it's not, it's just that he's not a good enough operator. He's not like a qualified enough operator of the empire because he's, um, you know, he's prone to, to impulsive decision making. He doesn't understand the kind of orthodoxy of Washington of, you know, you have this grand chessboard as, uh, as, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, called it you know and it and it requires like a real you know you have to understand the playbook of how to operate the u.s empire and if you're just some guy coming in and saying like i want to do this and he's also a businessman you know so he, he's prone to maybe he'll want to make a deal like he thought about making a deal with you know with kim jong-un but basically you know his 
everyone around him prevented that from happening. Um, so, you know, Trump is Trump is dangerous, but to be honest, I think the, everyone around him is even more dangerous. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. You know, the Middle East to, 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 uh, is kind of a little bit outside of my comfort zone, but I started uh, looking into it after seeing a lot of your content and some of the other people that you work with. But it made me think uh, also, and I'm wondering, um, do you think that when some of these things happen um, under uh, a right-wing government, people are way more critical of it than uh, when it happens under a, a left-wing government? And the reason I ask that is um, even though in this particular case, Obama decided against going ahead with that assassination, generally speaking, when you look at the list of things that, that Bush did um, in, in terms of w it, what other countries would most certainly call war crimes and all of these things, and then you look at what Obama did, it, it doesn't look much better. You know, there's a lot of shocking stuff in there as well. But everybody kind of looks back. Uh, they would, I think, I think people generally have a way more critical view of, um, uh, of Bush. And maybe that's, that's my flawed perspective as an outsider looking in. And I don't know if it has to do with the fact that Hollywood seems to be, you know, more or less, you know, um, left leaning and you've got that influence there, but is, is there a double standard or within the U S uh, it's more or less based on what people actually do? No, I think it's true that there is, you know, from the kind of, I would, like, kind of liberal class in the U.S., there's generally more pushback um, against, you know, right wing against Bush. So, like, Bush's war was very unpopular, still happened. Um, there were mass protests. Um, but, you know, where Obama came in and campaigned on, like, hope and change and, um you know, but he really continued a lot of the same policies and expanded the drone wars, um, you know, use of drones and, and assassinations, you know, uh, using drones. Um, and that became kind of the main, a major criticism of like the Obama foreign policy is just like this, like crazy drone assassination program. But it was, but it, you know, it didn't, it, like one of the things that was so effective about Obama's foreign policy is that it didn't really have many people coming home in body bags. Um, you know, so it's like Americans, like they get pretty excited about war at the beginning and the president's approval rating goes really high when they declare the war. And then it's like, once it goes poorly, which always happens, um, and then American soldiers start dying, then it becomes like, you know, all right, Americans are not really on board with this. Um, and so Obama basically eliminated the American soldiers in a lot of ways by, you know, having these kind of secret wars. There are a lot of secret right. wars under under his term. Um, so, you know, I think if if Trump were to like Trump can't really launch a ground invasion. You know, he had talked about um, launching a ground invasion of Venezuela, um, which would have been another, you know, kind of Iraq, Vietnam, some kind of horror show where just huge amounts of people, um, Venezuelans and American soldiers would die. And, you know, he just couldn't do it. I mean, he you know, he wanted to do it in Iran, too. And it's just like he it would he knew it would just he knew it would destroy his presidency in Iran in particular because um, the I, the Fox News host Tucker Carlson who's generally a right wing guy I mean he is a right wing guy he convinced Trump um, that it would destroy his foreign it would destroy his his legacy um, and there's no way he'd be reelected and and it would be you know much worse than even Iraq would be and. So he kind of, you know, convinced Trump to not to not go to war. Um, 
I mean, he's actually emerged as a really interesting character in the Trump era because he's, you know, got some really weird right wing views. But he's basically like I see him as kind of the angel on on Trump's arm, you know, whereas like, I mean, John Bolton's out. But like a John Bolton figure is like the devil on his uh, on his shoulder. And, and Tucker Carlson is like the angel. And yeah, it's Tucker Carlson. Like he says all kinds of things I disagree with culturally. You know, he's very conservative and all this stuff. But um you know, he's kind of like the anti-war voice in Trump's ear. That's He also told him to take coronavirus seriously. When Trump was calling it a hoax, Tucker Carlson flew down to Mar-a-Lago and was like, Mr. President, you have to like take this seriously. This is a real thing. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something. And, and just uh, finishing off on the thought, too, though, of um, accountability, of whether it's a, a right-wing government or left-wing government, I, I still can't help, uh, just to get back to that point too, I can't help but think that uh, celebrities and things like that, considering Hollywood is mostly left-leaning, I'm, I'm assuming that that's uh, the case from the outside, that's what it looks like, but they're more likely to um, speak up when, when Trump does something that they don't like right. than, it, than holding somebody like Obama to task on something. Because people are kind of, it seems like they are picking, uh, picking their sides and they're, you know, they go all the way with it. You know, I, I started... Um, I started listening to, uh, I mean, I listened to news and everything like that from both sides. And I started listening to a lot more uh, right-wing stuff uh, on it just before Trump came in. And there's some interesting voices out there, um, you know, with uh, Candace Owens and all of these people. Again, same kind of thing. I don't necessarily agree with everything they say. But the one thing I noticed was these people who I do consider intellectuals, regardless if I agree with them or not, it's like, they go all the way. It's like they they don't like they even uh, uh, they're on board with even the most ridiculous things. People just pick their sides, right? And they kind of just yeah yeah. Um, well, I think that's one of the reasons Bush had a lot of opposition to the war. It's because he was a Republican um, to the war in Iraq. But I mean, yeah, there's you know it's just like partisan partisanism. There's so much of it in the U.S. and it's really hampering any kind of like good response to the coronavirus crisis. Um, and it's just. Yeah, that's- it's just a plague. But at the same time, you know, they'll be like, you know, China just has the communist party. And so, you know, they're a dictatorship, but we have multiple parties. We have two parties. Um, and so, you know, that's, that means we have freedom yet, you know, our two parties cannot hardly get anything done. And the things they do get done are all for the, all for billionaires. But when it comes to like, you know, getting working class people, anything, it's just like, infighting and bickering and dysfunction and you know it just it can't happen yeah it it goes back to what i'm what i say about people need when they say that they need to actually think about what it means so when people for example say that china lacked transparency in the beginning of this coronavirus thing and then they ramped up january 11th they genome sequenced this released it to the public so that everybody could start preparing for this they locked down cities and they took this really seriously here and so uh, if there was a transparency issue in the beginning and people really think that um, when when doctors uh, hear something um, and and they want to just go out to the public and say to everybody, okay, okay, we, we need to all panic before it goes through the necessary processes, even if we even if we don't want to argue about that point, and even if we want to say, okay, China lacked transparency, their lack of transparency caused a delay in the beginning, but in the end, they came through in a way. So with a response so much bigger than anybody else. So at the end of the day, what would you rather have? Would you have no transparency with complete action and and keeping us all safe? Um, 
which obviously comes with its own issues, or would you be happily saying, we have complete transparency, but we do nothing about it? <laughs> right. It, it, it's like, yeah, like what, what are we actually we <laughs> have here? Well, here in the U.S., we have uh, little transparency and little action. So it's like that, that, the worst that is of the, both. Yeah, that, both that is the actual truth of it. That's yeah. the actual truth of it. But e even if people were to believe that concept that we are the most transparent nation right. on earth, but we just don't do anything with the data. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, what's what's the use then? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's remarkable to see kind of the conflicting narratives about uh, how China has handled coronavirus here in the US. I mean, they're, you know, the right wants to use it to escalate the Cold War and say, you know, that it originated in China and China, you know, didn't tell the US and all this stuff and blah, blah. And it's, you know, which is not true that China didn't tell the US, that China told the US on January 3rd according to Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary. Yeah. And for mm, about two months, the U.S. did nothing. You know what happened on January 3rd when, the, when China told the, the Center for Disease Control? That is the day that the U.S. assassinated Qasem Soleimani. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, so that's, you know, that's where American priorities are. So it's like... Um, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting seeing that it looks like there are some divides happening in the U.S. now because I saw the, the weirdest thing. It was the U.S. embassy in Ireland that uh, in Dublin or whatever, it, 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 they released a tweet saying, did you know that the CDC, the American CDC, has an office in Be Beijing, works closely with the government authorities and was on the grounds with authorities in Wuhan investigating this? And it's like no additional context, but it's like it was almost like pushing back against what... Uh, the rest of the government is saying on mm. the you know United States side, and it was really interesting uh, to see. So it seems like there are divisions happening, or, or perhaps it's just getting so the finger pointing is getting so ridiculous, and it's affecting uh, the ability to taking away important attention from actually responding to it. That maybe some people are going to more and more people are going to start standing out, even from within the government. Yeah, I mean, there's major, major divisions and splits within, like, the ruling class and the government. And there's, I mean, you know, f for better or worse, and I guess in some ways, for better that there's that there's divisions. But, it, you know, it can go, it can go different ways. Um, and, you know, I mean, Trump has proven to be an extremely inept leader in this time. I mean... You know, I have I have my criticisms of him in general, but I mean, his handling of the coronavirus crisis has been just an F um, and it's going to cost a lot of lives. Um, but it's also it's not only Trump. It's you know, I mean, there is the cold the, the Cold War with China is bigger than Trump. Um, and he, I mean, he's escalated the trade war and he's you know, he's he started the trade war, really. But he's and he's refused to grant exemptions, you know, on products for like Purell you know, yeah, hand sanitizer, things like that, that it's like, it's desperately needed that can, you know, prevent uh, the spread, you know, the, tr the transfer of the virus. Um, but, you know, I mean, we've seen the, uh, this country's kind of institutions hollowed out for decades. Um, you know, it's really interesting to see um, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York being hailed as some kind of hero right now, um, when, you know, this Republican governor has overseen, you know, hospital beds being removed, um, the healthcare system being gutted, 
Um, and all of a sudden now he's like, you know, doing these daily briefings as, he's if some, as if he's some kind of hero. And now that he has this crisis on his hands, I mean, what was unthinkable a, a month ago, two months ago, is now happening where he's he's calling on Trump to nationalize uh, uh, health care, um, you know, where it's like that's that's unbelievable. I mean, people have been calling that, you know, that's it, been kind of like considered extreme, like some kind of socialist position for, you know, for years and years. But now it's like all of a sudden, like governors are like, Mr. President, like we're going to have huge amounts of dead people unless you do this. And he refuses to do it. There's actually an incredible clip. Um, of a reporter asking Trump, you know, you have these these governors asking you to to uh, nationalize, um, you know, the the healthcare supply system, you know, and he says we're not going to do that because look at Venezuela, they nationalized their their healthcare their uh, businesses and and look how they are, and so he gives this example of a country that's been you know crushed by sanctions, um, by U.S. sanctions as like you know the example of a failure. It's just so sadistic. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I'm looking at what's going on there and I'm actually embarrassed by one of my comments in one of my previous videos because before anybody was really taking action and we were waiting for governments to take action, I said in one of my videos, um, you know, if you compare Canada to the US, I said I would rather have somebody like Trump uh, leading the nation than Justin Trudeau because Justin Trudeau can be a little bit flaky and a little bit, you know, uh, I didn't think he would be capable of handling something like this. When you look at Trump saying, okay, if, 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 if the shit really hits the fan and he's really got to do something, he can take the bull by the horns and do what, you know, do what he's got to do. Um, but we didn't see that. We didn't see him doing that. We see all of a sudden prior economic priorities or whatever else going on. And just, it's just a complete mess. Whereas Justin Trudeau, he did what I thought he'd never do. He came out and said, guys, stay home. If you're not listening, we will use the law. We will use our, our police force to enforce this. And he took it really, really seriously. And it completely <laughs> undid my assumption of who would be a better leader during a time like this. But it's scary, though. I mean, there's so many people. I'm seeing videos online of people who are out of work now. Um, they're afraid about medical bills and all this stuff. And I just can't help but feel really, really sad for them. And, and, and imagine how worrying it is for so many people in the U.S. right now. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really scary. And, you know, it's basically like, this is like the 2009, you know, 2008, 2009 economic crisis where um, basically that resulted in, you know, huge amounts of unemployment, poverty, homelessness, um, you know, people losing their, yeah, people losing their homes and just a massive wealth transfer to the rich, to the ultra, ultra wealthy. I mean, I don't mean rich, like, you know, you make 100 or $200,000. I'm talking about like the ultra wealthy billionaires. And, you know, the country actually never recovered from that. Here in the U.S., we never recovered from that. And now that's basically the same thing that's happening. The Trump just signed uh, a four and a half billion dollar bailout, bailout, they call it, um, which is just another wealth transfer to corporations with no strings attached. Um, and average people are going to get, you know, working class people who make under $100,000, $99,000 are going to get a one-time payment of $1,200, which, you know, here I live in DC, Washington, DC, that's good for half a month of rent. And so it's like, that's nothing. 
Um, well, not not only that, there was a report also that said the twelve hundred dollars uh, that everybody's going to get uh, perfectly, almost perfectly matches up with the additional twelve hundred dollars in expenses people will have from all of these tariffs from the trade war. You know, <laughs> I didn't it, see that. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, because it, yeah, it's like it, it, as much as Trump wants to say it's the other countries that will pay. No, it's the American consumers that will yeah, pay. Yeah, it's like it's like the Mexico will pay for the wall thing all over again. Right. So all that's happened is that they they've received relief from for, for the trade war, and now they're back at zero. Now they're even again. Um, but yeah, it's it's really messed up the priorities and the way that that, that 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 things are happening. I just hope there's some silver lining in this. I mean, geopolitically, I do think there's a silver lining in that you know the kind of U.S. paradigm of just total domination is being discredited. Um, you know, same. You know, the EU is is there's major divisions in the EU now, um, and China is basically filling those gaps. And you know, there's a lot of American politicians who think that it's some nefarious plot by China. But it's like it's basically China just offering solidarity and saying like, well, we can, you know, we're happy to give you masks and, you know, this, that medical supplies and help to combat this. And it's like, you know, it's easy to say, um, you know, if you have all your resources that, oh, you know, this is some Chinese plot and there's an ulterior motive. But it's like, you know, if you're if you're dying, if your people are dying and someone offers you a it's like if you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst and someone offers you a drink. I don't care where I'm, you know, where they're from. I'm going to take that drink. It doesn't matter anymore. And you know, it, it, it's, yeah, it, it's, it has been fascinating to see when uh, China, so I know one of the frontline doctors in Wuhan also, and I was sharing some pictures with him of the nurses and doctors in the U S who are just same kinds of things as before, like sleeping on the ground, leaning up against the wall, just exhausted. It's it absolutely breaks your heart to see it. Just like it broke my heart when I saw Chinese doctors going through the same thing. And for him too, when I sent it to him, he says, this is really terrible. And he said, you know, soon uh, we're probably going to be sent overseas to help uh, other people. And he's looking forward to it. He's looking forward to helping other people, despite going through one of the most difficult periods in his life in Wuhan, just being worked to death being scared for his life when he was first called from his hometown to be sent there. He's got two young kids and his wife was worried for him also. And he's ready to go out again to battle now, not only for his own people, but for other people. And that's why it's so infuriating to see when newspapers saying, Oh, they're trying to curry, uh, you know, a favor or whatever it is. Right. Like China has a long history of this. It was back when China almost had nothing. They helped with uh, 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 railroads in Africa. Before this, they have um, a military ship that travels around the world with doctors helping people long before this coronavirus situation. Nobody knows about that. Nobody's covering that, that ship, uh, the medical ship that China has been sending around the, the world for years to help people. And all of a sudden, it's, um, it's this giant agenda. And it's it's annoying. It's insulting, especially to, to, to the frontline doctors in Wuhan who are ready to go and help people. Um, it, it's just it's, it's, it's upsetting to see. Yeah, no, it's I mean, it, it, it totally is. It's really disgusting to me. And, you know, speaking for myself, I mean, I'm I'm amazed by what, you know, China has done, by what Cuba has done. And really, when I look at it, it's, you know, the countries that have defended their revolutions um, have and, you know, that are under sanctions and that are the targets of the U.S. empire that are providing the most solidarity and material aid to countries that are being yeah, hit. Cuba also, wasn't it? Exactly. I mean, I went to yeah. I went to Cuba um, over the summer, right? Actually, the, the day when I was supposed to be packing to go to Cuba, I was working on that Hong Kong on my Hong Kong article. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Cramming> <laughs> and I went to Cuba the next day and I went uh, for my honeymoon for two weeks. And it was just incredible, just the most beautiful island. 
cultural powerhouse. The people are uh, amazing, That's friendly. Amazing, yeah. Food is good, and my, it's just yeah. like. Yeah, my sister had her wedding there. I went. I went for her wedding. It'd be beautiful, and you see all the old cars on the street too. The, yeah, you know, the, it's yeah, like really beautiful. And yeah. it's like for such a small place, it has it produces so much culture and and just like so much good to the world. And it's under this you know horrible blockade for sixty years um, by you know the world's most powerful empire that it's just you know ninety miles away from. And so it's just like it's such an incredible success story to me. And it's like, what could Cuba accomplish if it wasn't under blockade? And so, you know, I mean, I'm it's like, I'm thankful to China and to Cuba and to the countries that are actually offering real solidarity to the world and that are saving lives, um, you know, where the U.S. is still bombing Iraq while China is delivering aid and, and this kind of thing. And so what I hope yeah. is that, you know, the silver lining in this period is that it signals some kind of um, new paradigm where you know the U.S. is losing its potency, which which is a you know a, I think a theme a theme that we've been seeing, um, but that this kind of like fast forwards it in a way, um, and not that you know I don't want I'm afraid for what's going to happen inside the U.S. that we're going to go through some kind of like you know kind of like after the collapse after the dissolution of the Soviet Union how it was in Russia for you know for years and years and years and. I'm afraid of what it's going to be because we have just such increasing inequality here, but you know, we have to look towards the future and I, and I just really hope that it's um, you know, a, we're ushering in some kind of era of international cooperation and solidarity where we can more effectively, you know, confront um, problems like pandemics that we're going to face in the future. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it is kind of so many things happening at the same time that would make that, um, seem like it's 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 possible i mean you've got the uh, increasing um, um uh, growing wealth gap which is uh, according to the gini coefficient the highest it's been in like 50 years um you've got this pandemic which exposes how ineffective the government is in in in, in uh, um, being there for its people when they need it and then you've got other countries which have been villainized by the world for ages going out and helping uh, the other countries and, and then people are going to start examining this a bit more and saying, OK, you know what? I've said all along, China's going around and building these economic partnerships because of their own self-interest and they're going to have a, a benefit also. Yeah, this is this is called mutual benefit, even if that's true. You know, they're not sending soldiers with guns. They're sending scientists, road builders, doctors. And it's like even if they're going to benefit from having uh, economic trade between the country, which is going to lift that country up also, and right. everybody's going to benefit, what's better? What's the better option? And I think people are just scared of this idea that China's the next global superpower. Um, when, if you actually look at it, and even if you think, you know, so one of the arguments is that, okay, so China is a fairly centralized power. And even if they want to concede with me and say that, yes, they're a force for good in the world right now, but because their power is so centralized, what if all of a sudden they turn bad? And it's like what we can see based on facts right now, based on what they're actually doing, they would be a better um they would be a better global power based on what they're doing right now for other countries. And if they did happen to turn bad, maybe what we're going to end up with is what we have now, which isn't that great anyways, but at least there is a hope. At least there is a chance of something better. We can only go based on the evidence of, of, of what, uh, what, what we can see. And I think there's enough evidence for a lot of countries to say, we're ready for something a little bit more different than, um, you know, uh, especially developing nations than what we've been living uh, with in the world.
Yeah, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You know, it's like we can say, you know, everyone in Washington can say, oh, China's this dictatorship or whatever. But it's like, uh, you know, a lot of the world disagrees uh, or or seems to, you know, find something enticing about that so-called dictatorship. And, you know, where the, the U.S. has really discredited itself, um, you know, on the international stage and domestically. So. Yeah, I mean, from all walks of life, from the from the villages to the cities to everything, people are pretty supportive of their government here. You're going to find people who have issues with the government. And there's open conversations about that. I mean, there was I was at this uh, RV kind of a tailgate kind of a party and there were two guys arguing with each other. But, you know, one guy really didn't like something about the government. And the other guy did. And you, you have these kinds of arguments here. But overall, the overwhelming majority of people and people can see that from the Chinese who go on the Internet, use a VPN to comment on stuff. They can see it from Chinese students who go overseas and still say that they love their government and they love their country. These people, uh, you know, there's enough of them for people to say, maybe I'm uh, a little bit off the mark here by trying to tell these people what's best for them. And, you know, and, and, and stop call, just calling them brainwashed because that's how they're discredited right now. They just say, oh, they're just brainwashed. Right. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, that's and that's where I think it's really important for, you know, alternative media to, you know, and, and like people like you, you know, just like doing your own YouTube show and this kind of thing to like, you know, bridge that gap to kind of uh, provide an alternative narrative. And, and so people, you know, can kind of like, we need to burst that bubble so people can, you know, get like a sense of reality. Cause I mean, we're just subject to so much uh, mm -hmm. propaganda in this country that it's, it's really hard. You know, I think when you, a lot of people, when you start talking to them as, you know, face to face, you know, it's, it's not that hard, but I mean, they're just, they're just like, it's like a barrage of propaganda from 50 different sources. And because it's from so many different sources, all the same message, they think they're free. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, yeah. it's very, it, it, it really consumes them. And yeah, you know. the first, the first shell to break is to get people to at least um, think about it with an open mind. I mean, they may look at the facts afterwards and still say, no, nah, you know what? I don't like the system. I don't think, I think they should change it, but they're not even at the point where they can at least uh, entertain the idea or entertain the facts or look at it in an honest way. But uh, when you, when you talk about people like this, do you, do you find with, so obviously we covered the fact that you get a lot of hate, but do you find that you get uh once in a while you get people who say to you, thanks for making this, you know, I never really thought of it this way. Definitely. And, oh, definitely. Yeah. I've had people, you know, who, who's, um, definitely, I, you know, I get messages and emails and stuff where it's like, you know, thank you so much or, you, you know, whatever it is, or exactly what you said, where it's like, oh, I never thought of it. Or like I had, uh, one guy who's in Hong Kong who messaged me and he's like, I didn't understand it until your video. And I was like, I mean, it was funny to me because it's like I'm just some guy in Washington who just, yeah. you know, picked up what I could. You're actually there. But he's like and so that like opened his eyes to like basically the U.S. empire in general. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's really rewarding to, you know, to get those kind of messages and know that like your work is making an impact and helping people, you know, understand their surroundings and reality. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is definitely. So uh, we've been going on for a little while here, almost almost two hours. Wow, that time fly, mm -hmm. flew by. So, and um, what I want to maybe what we'll wrap up with is maybe say a little bit about what's next for you. What kinds of things are you working on? Where you know what's basically what's next? Well, I'm working on this long term documentary that I'm trying to finish in the next few months uh, about um, the Israeli far right wing um, that wants to basically have this like apocalyptic war blow up. Um, 
the um, central mosque, the basically the most important mosque in Jerusalem um, is some kind of like fanatical apocalyptic thing. And they have actually a lot of power in the Israeli government. Um, and so they, they used to be very fringe and now they're kind of mainstream. They have mainstream support. So I'm working on that. Um, hopefully it'll be released this summer. And otherwise, you know, I'm really looking forward to kind of, uh, um, you know, getting back to like journalism and, and uh, you know, I mean, I really want to focus more on China and learn more about China and, and hopefully I really, I really, yeah, yeah. I want to pour, pour a cold one for me. No, I'm really yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it'll be challenging, you know, cause we have our newborn baby right now. So I don't know when exactly I'll be able to travel. We'll have to figure that out. But I mean, China is like number one on my list to come visit. So, and obviously it's a huge place. So there'll be a lot more visits in order, but uh, yeah, just, you know, working on my documentary, getting back to journalism and hopefully do some traveling and raise my kid. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Exciting times and in, um, in unprecedented times also. Indeed. So, yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here and uh, hopefully maybe we'll do another one again soon and we'll put this up and uh, get some feedback and I'll put the links to your uh, videos that you mentioned in the description as well. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Thanks a lot. Take care.